Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce today's lunchtime talk, an introduction to revolution, Russian art, 1917 to 1932, with Professor John Milner. And I hope if you haven't already, you'll take the opportunity after the lecture to go visit this extraordinary exhibition. This landmark show comes on the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution of 1917. And it takes its inspiration from a 1932 exhibition in Leningrad curated by Nicholas Poonin. So you will see echoes of that exhibition as you go through ours. Professor John Milner is honorary professor of Russian art at the Courtauld Institute and co-curator of this exhibition. An art historian, tutor, writer, curator, and painter. And we've been talking about how you, unusual it is for someone to be both a scholar and an artist. He specializes in the 20th century art of Russia, as well as teaching and curating exhibitions on Russian art. He has also published regularly and spoken at international conferences and debates. He was co-founder of the Cambridge Courtauld Russian Art Center, a joint initiative between the Department of the History of Art at the University of Cambridge and the Courtauld Institute of Art London to provide a forum for the investigation of Russian and Soviet art. Today, John will introduce Revolution, Russian Art, 1917 to 1932, our exhibition, and examine how artists from Kazimir Malevich to Alexander Denica made Russian art revolutionary in the years following the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. Please join me in welcoming Professor John Milner. Uh, thank you, Beth. That's very nice of you. But you start getting interested in Russian art, you just bear this in mind when you're going around the exhibition. It grabs you, you know, and it's very difficult to get out again. And it is so intricate in its relationship with Europe and with other uh, cultural contexts. And we're going to look at that a bit in this lecture. And Dumas, who's one of the co-curators of the exhibition, uh, produced a rather good phrase for it, beautiful works in terrible times. And, of course, we do have to, in some ways, face up to the political dimension of the subject. So here's the man who appears on the posters. Um, this illustrates quite well uh, this political dimension. It was pretty well required from the autumn of 1917 that art should be political in a way that supported the Bolsheviks. Uh, this was so persuasive, not just by word of mouth, but by the fact that there were no other patrons apart from the Bolsheviks. There were no private galleries from that point onwards, no commercial galleries. Major private collections were all um, nationalized, was the word used. Uh, the most famous of these was that of Sergei Shchukin, some of you may have heard of, um, who was offered the job of director of his own collection. <laughs> After it had been nationalized, he decided in the end he didn't like this arrangement. Um, at the same time, we have to guard against the dangers of hindsight. A lot of these people did not know if the revolution was going to last for another month or another year, and certainly many would have expected it fade away before it did in the, uh, well, fairly recent, in the last decades of the 20th century. So here is a painting by Boris Kostodiev called The Bolshevik, and it dates from 1920. 
It illustrates this gigantic figure, Bolshevik, mean, big of course, and Bolshevik was the big half of the Communist Party, and he is a big man, his gigantic figure of the Bolshevik revolutionary striding through the streets of Moscow, I think probably, but he could be Petrograd here. He's crushing people under his feet. It's almost impossible for him to get through that crowd of people without doing serious damage. It's possible that he's going to smash this church. So it's, what I think is, it's not quite clear whether he's in favor of the Bolsheviks or not. There's an element of doubt possible there. And um, added to the fact that um, Kustodiev was an invalid who rarely, if ever, left his apartment. And he saw the revolution going on through his window. He writes about this. So his engagement with it was not always that of direct observation. And he was very careful to attune his message to his um, paymasters, really. What we have to take on board is a set of very simple criteria which determine the Bolshevik um, early revolutionary phase. Lenin was in charge, of course, nationally, certainly. And uh, the order of command, as far as artists were concerned, was very simple. There was Lenin, there was a man called Anatoly Lunacharsky, who was the Commissar of the Enlightenment, grand Frenchified title, Commissar for the Enlightenment, which put him in charge of education and culture. Below him was in Petrograd Nikolai Putin, who's already been mentioned, who organized this big show in 1932, who was very sympathetic to a wide range of contemporary art. And below him, in 1917, there was Vladimir Tatlin, pioneer, uh, artist, and uh, constructor. So this is a very short chain of command, and that's where the money was. So many artists we shall mention who appear to be devoted to the cause had no alternative. There was nowhere else to go. For a while you could leave if you didn't want to stay, but um, the money had essentially collapsed very rapidly. But on the other hand, the Bolshevik government under its cultural section called Narkompros, People's Commissariat of the Enlightenment Art Department, produced a lot of money for street parades, decorations in the street, and so on. So there was some money, but it was all in the center. Imagine artists today who had no sponsor, who had no purchaser apart from the state. You know, this would be a catastrophic situation for any group of artists. Here, is the, here are the front steps, which was slightly emulated in the Royal Academy building, with its red carpet going up the steps of the Russian Museum in um, what we now call St. Petersburg, and there's the catalogue. There were over 2,600 works in this exhibition. It was colossal. Uh, we have 250, who don't give you some feeling for the size of this. And it was very grand. You see the hammer and sickle, which the Royal Academy declined to take on board, um, for reasons I can understand, um, and the great red flags up at the top there. So a very grand uh, event. And surveying 15 years of work since the revolution. So what it was surveying was the whole question of what is revolutionary art? What can it be? We were trying to make a new society in a rough, and often violent way. What can it be? 
Now, this is particularly important in various ways. I've put in some strange-looking Russian words here, just to give you the flavor. Explodity is an invented Russian futurist work, meaning bang, basically. And uh, so blast seems to be a good, a good equivalent to it. I want to just sketch in something of this change. It seems to me that the revolution, for one reason or other, was like the end of an opera, which ending with a crash and a bang and the curtain coming down. And then people running all around on the stage, but when the audience go outside, they see such lights and cannons firing uh, because there's a revolution going on outside. So this is my rather romantic image of it. But in actual fact, the uh, period just before the revolution was extremely fruitful and diverse and inventive. Here is a Malevich painting from 19... 13, called Desk and Room, obviously Cubist in some ways. Moscow was an easier place to find Cubist paintings by Picasso and others than Paris because of this man Stukin buying things uh, so avidly and taking them back to Russia. But the, moment, the reason I want to um, bring this into it at the moment, I've chosen this particular work because it's in the show. By 1915, Malevich had painted this painting, uh, an unreasonably famous painting. Um, he was pleased that it was so boring. It, it is a black square set in a white surround, which you can't see here because of the nature of the slide, but there's a, a margin of white goes around it, and you can see he's overpainted some earlier painting. That's what you can see coming through the crackle of this canvas. The desk and room painting, 1913, was painted really for the open market. It, it featured in something, an exhibition called Tramway V, subtitled First Futurist Exhibition of Paintings. And at that point, Malevich, like many artists, was trying to get famous. He was trying to make good connections. He had supporters, and uh, there was sponsorship for the exhibition, and he was fighting his way in an open market, put it like that. The whole panoply we're used to of, uh, of galleries and dealers and critics and curators were all in place and very lively in Russia before World War I and before the revolution. The Black Square dates from 1915, first exhibited December 1915, along with Malevich's launch of a movement he called Suprematism. Black Square's not a very interesting thing in itself, but my goodness, it's become certainly as famous as uh, Duchamp's urinal. There it is in this exhibition called Zero Ten, the last futurist exhibition of paintings. He called it the last futurist exhibition because he wanted to kill off the futurists. In other words, he wanted to get them behind him and start something completely new. Black square meant black flag to some people. The anarchists fly a black flag. They've done it in the, in the Paris Commune. Maybe it's a black flag. Um, Benoit, the very elegant designer for the Ballet Russe, called it an anarchist icon. It's hanging in a corner space, traditional for Russian icon painting. Malevich called it all kinds of things. He called it a living royal infant. That's a surprising description. I think he meant... The king is dead, long live the king. This, he also called it the um, Omega and Alpha, the end and the beginning. 
And the, it was the beginning of all these other paintings that have come out of it one way or another through variations and nudges and changes and developing systems of the geometry of the square and the circle. So the, <laughs> the omega and the alpha. And um, he saw the black square as the end. There were a lot of anarchists in Russia in the war years, and they became uh, quite um, a vigorous uh, group of people. And Malievich did write for a newspaper called Anarchia. Now, um, looking at these things, you can see what looks what he called a semaphore. A semaphore of, sorry, I missed it by the, the um, microphone. Uh, a semaphore of the future. Like a lot of Russian futurists, he thought the future still existed and we would just get there one day like crossing a field or something. And these are images of space flight. The white is eternal space. The forms are weightless. He's devised a kind of perspective system that doesn't have a single viewpoint, a vanishing point. And the more you look at them, the more you see that the relationship between these shapes in size and form is what gives them this floating, flying feeling. And he was convinced, along with quite a few other scientists as well as artists, that mankind was born to live in outer space and that we live in a great new era where anything is possible. There's a drawing on the far side related to this painting in which it does actually put in some little rocket ships and uh, war makers and you know, calculations of the distance to the target and so on, crawling all over it. Now you might wonder why this is important to us. Um, Malevich's innovations happened in 1915-1916 before the revolution. He always claimed afterwards that he predicted the revolution and that the revolution in art had come first. And it's rather a precarious way of keeping money coming in, this kind of reputation, after the revolution. But you can see that there was an extremely lively art world, if you like, even in the war years. It didn't lack pace at all, in fact, throughout World War I. Uh, mainly soldiers from the peasantry were filling up the muddy fields of uh, Prussia and so on in World War I, and of course it was a disaster for the, uh, for the emperor, who notionally put himself in charge of the Russian army. So we see a glimpse of that sequence of events which was about to destroy the imperial um, uh, family, really, as well as the imperial dynasty, which had lasted for centuries. So there was a time, even in the war years, when there were dealers and buyers and artists who relied upon their inventiveness, their own individual inventiveness, promoted through a gallery system. In 1917, this ended. No galleries, no private collections, and so on. Nothing. No obvious way to get money. All kinds of crises happening with food. So you had to approach the government. And in 1917, it was the avant-garde, or as the Russians called them at the time, the leftist artists, who immediately went to see Lenin and immediately talked with, um, with Lunacharsky to say, what are, what, what are we going to do? <laughs> what are we going to do? Most of us can't emigrate. There isn't any money. The patrons have disappeared. There are no jobs. Uh, there are no... Um, private collectors, what, what can we do? What's, how can we help <laughs> with your new construction of a whole new culture? The Bolsheviks, want, Bolsheviks 
included many people, then in among them, who were quite conservative in their interest in art and architecture. But there was a great demand also to obliterate obvious signs of the imperial culture. If it weren't to be destroyed, and many sculptures, of course, of, uh, of the Romanovs were destroyed, if it wasn't going to be destroyed literally, it would be obliterated in some way. Here is uh, Lenin on this side, and Lunacharsky telling a small crowd about his uh, feelings about art for the workers on the other side in uh, Petrograd in 1917. Futurist artists, inventive artists of very wide range flocked to Lunacharsky, who was really quite unprepared for it being a priority. He was trying to get people to learn to read, primarily. Um, but um, he set up committees run by this avant-garde artists. All the documents for this exist, and it's quite extraordinary that the Bolsheviks almost inherited a very lively bunch of futurists, cubo-futurists and others who wanted to seize the opportunity to make uh, a new culture work. It had to be new because the port structure had gone. So, so what happens? So the idea emerges rapidly that there are criteria <coughs> which have to be observed. And you could use these criteria when you go around the show to see whether you think they're being observed. Um, the new culture had to be collectively made. No more sitting soulfully wondering about your talents or your identity in the studio. You had to work on collectively, with groups. This was a priority. Your work had to be politically embracing the Bolshevik cause in some way. It had to be political in that sense. This is why we have Lenin and Stalin of the first room of the exhibition. Everything had its political dimension. Everyone was breathing the same air, really, at that time in this respect. And thirdly, it had to be public in its manifestation. Well, you see, I saw an ironic step in this direction in this painting by a man called Tepsikorov of um, a chap in a traditional kind of artist studio in the attic somewhere, and he's taken, a, he's put down his paintbrush on pictures of, in frames and so on, and he's painting van banners for the streets. This one says, all power to the Soviets. This is a very big change. There's no need to prioritize painting at all once you'd grasp the Bolshevik idea that art should no longer be luxury goods for wealthy people. There weren't any wealthy people anyway, or very few. And um, so you're looking at a, well, I call it a kind of flashpoint, um, a moment where the fact that Russia had more or less lost World War I to the Germans, that the Germans had been defeated by the Allies, and then the provisional government had been defeated by the Bolsheviks, meant you got a pretty clear slate at the end of all that. Uh, they weren't even interested in putting up war memorials. It was quite rough and ready and violent in a way like that. Um, so the celebration of the new regime was um, not a choice. It wasn't optional. You had to do it. And it meant that artists became politicized pretty well at once. And this is a wonderful painting by Kustodiev, which you see as you go into the exhibition, an enormous painting of the meeting of the second 
rather ineffective as it happened, international gathering of um, Bolshevik and um, allied groups in Petrograd um, in 1920, I think, 2021. Here is the um, Winter Palace and the Hermitage in the background, and here you see the red flags flying. Some of them are French, some are Korean, there are Chinese people there. It's this great idea that for some inexplicable reason the Bolsheviks seized upon it's in Karl Marx's phrase, that they would take over the entire world. It is workers of the world that unite. And this international, of course, the great international, was a means to pursue that. Wonderful painting. They're full of vignettes and excited school children going along. There's even a group of nurses. There's a, there's a party member reading proudly in the bottom right-hand corner full of excitement, and there was a certain sort of optimism in the air, though times were desperate. But on the other hand, um, there was a need for everything to look positive. It was decided uh, that the Hermitage should become people's palace of art, and they had exhibitions of untaught workers, soldiers, uh, children. <laughs> and they decided that paintings should be hung on the outside of the great museums which is what you see here. These are by a man called Kozlinski. And here, I think, probably you see agriculture, meeting, industry, and so on. Can you imagine this? Paintings on the outside of building. This is another example. There are a lot of photographs of these things, which went up in 1918, 1919, in Petrograd in particular. RSFSR is the Russian Federation. And um, this is by a painter called Puni, P-U-N-I. And you can see a little crowd moving down the street in this great uh, canvas that's being hung down the front of the uh, classical building, a bit like we've hung an awning of the Bolshevik on, uh, on the building here. And this newspaper was produced, Iskustro Komuni is the art of the commune, which Nikolai Punin edited. It was, um, it was uh, it, it's got the headline here, but it reported on futurist events, on public events, and rapidly digested and presented the ideological shifts of the early years. So we're talking about an art in the street here, not in the private studio, but public and collective. And the headline in Art of the Commune here says, from Mayakovsky's verse, the streets are our brushes and the squares are our palettes. And you see, it's almost literally true when you look at these, um, when you look at these uh, gigantic works. So the new regime, from the start, was modelling a new framework, collective, political, public, which undermined all the old artists' ways of working. <laughs> you couldn't have even group exhibitions without it being organised this way. And uh, the first thing that Lenin himself contributed to all of this, and after all, whether you like him or not, he had a lot on his mind, um, was um, what he called his proposal for monumental propaganda. That was temporary monuments to revolutionary heroes should go up in the streets of St. Petersburg, Petrograd, that is, and to some extent in Moscow. This is an interesting photograph. This is, uh, shows one of these monuments to um, uh, Sofia Pyrovskaya. I don't know if anyone knows about her. She um, was an anarchist. She blew the legs off Alexander II with a bomb. They're promoting her. They're saying she was a heroine for this reason. 
It's, a, it's, it's a horrifying to think of. Uh, it happens to have been made, this slightly Boccioni or Bernini-like head, it happens to be made by an Italian who... an Italian called Griselli, who was an Italian futurist who had come to Russia just before the revolution broke out, and he stayed for a bit, and he made this, uh, this monument. So we have an Italian futurist, you know, a Russian monument of a revolutionary kind. And he's standing beside um, Lunacharsky with his kind of goatee beard there. So you see the power structure here, really, and probably Bunin is there somewhere. This is certainly Tatlin at this end because he's been put in charge of uh, the visual arts in Petrograd. Some forms of art are much more amenable to being collective and political and public, and posters are among them. Posters, film, theatre, all of these things were naturally fitting a lot of these criteria, much easier than it was for painters. Um, but the great thing about these early Soviet posters is the inventiveness of a lot of those artists is allied to an explicit message and painters found this much more difficult so Kozlinski here has a Bolshevik, as you see this big man in red scattering little bankers really <laughs> as he marches forward and the, the um, caption says in spite of three years of the West if attacks from our enemies the world revolution is striding forward with gigantic steps Propaganda, yes. You might ask yourself in Lunacharsky's eye, would this be education or would it be propaganda? And what's the difference? <laughs> there is a difference, but it's a big question to debate. Another case on the other far side by the um, artist, um, painter, printmaker, uh, Debyadyev, is a similar theme of workers storming along and scattering the... Um, what they do call the bourgeoisie at that time, the shopkeepers, the people who employed other people. They're quite light-hearted in some ways and amusing, but they're effective. And really, they don't need the words. A great majority of uh, Russians were illiterate, so there was a, a special role for um, posters. And very, very many thousands of posters were published at uh, great um, um, length. Uh, you know, the tirage, the, the printing numbers. Here's an example by Mayakovsky, a very famous poet of the revolution, uh, one of the few people who was clearly a left-wing uh, activist before the revolution and remained so afterwards, he made window posters. These are called Rosta windows, Russian telegraph agency, and they made posters advertising um, government priorities and they stuck them on the inside of empty food shop windows when there wasn't any food. So this was a good find. This is a Mayakovsky poster about... It says at the top, you know, things are pretty bad here, but wait until you see how bad it is for the English. <laughs> uh, then you see this uh, villainous capitalist has got all his goods stored away in the warehouse, and then a starving um, worker comes along and begs for some work, and then he's, um, he's um, employed under un unreasonable circumstances, and he can't afford to buy anything even in the, in the shop, factory shop, and here's the capitalist running away with his money to in, you know, invest it abroad. And then the factory is temporarily closed down and then they're all starving and it's getting worse because they have families to feed. And then they decide 
there's the capitalist hiding behind the factory. Then they decide the people are going to have to take over the storehouses and throw out the, um, the um, owner of them all. It's not the way we tend to think these days, but this is the message here. And any world revolution will bring this about. We're really in these early years also looking at the period of the Civil War. There was great um, fighting to suppress the Red Russia, the Bolshevik Russia, by um, actions from white armies and uh, czarist um, sympathizers from, uh, from the north, from Ukraine, and from the west. So that the edges of the Bolshevik Empire were quite um, movable in various ways until 1921-22 when things became stabler. Uh, here is a magnificent painting by Alexander Dienyeka of the uh, defense of Petrograd. Uh, technically, it's rather marvelous, I think, to realize these people are walking on the ice of the river, and there's no river bank, and it goes all the way to the boats, you know, without a horizon line in between. But the exhausted citizens' army is coming back, walking along the top, and then fresh people, including women, are going off to fight to save Petrograd from the white uh, armies attacking the city. This is figurative painting of a special kind, already becoming public in its, um, in its message and political in the early years of the, of the revolution. The main important point for our exhibition in this respect, and you can see the painting uh, there, is that um, it shows that figurative art was there pretty well from the beginning. It wasn't all the avant-garde, and this is what we've been trying to uh, explain and reveal in the, in the layout of the show. But the message, there was always a message. Every time there's a message. And uh, you're, it's a bit like you have to be on side. You have to be a member of the team. You have to keep uh, your presence felt. So here is a poster of um, man and woman. You see they've got their rifles beside them. And, they, and he's got his army hat and so on. And, uh, and she's got a sickle by her feet. They've come back from the countryside and from the fighting of the Red Army against the Whites and they've now entered the factory where they are equals. So this is an image of industry with his hammer and agriculture with the sickle. And you can see there's a great train and factory and the city of the future visible in the background. It was envisaged in the early days that somehow agriculture uh, and industry would be two halves of the proletariat, somehow balanced the countryside providing the food for the proletariat. Now, these proletariat people, in principle, had seized their own, their own means of production. They didn't have to give it to the boss. It was a system built, built upon some um, Renaissance ideas that the, everyone should own everything, and no one should own anything privately. Everything would be publicly owned. And there were even attempts to deny people shelving or cupboards in their apartments because it encouraged private ownership. So the whole society was to be one great, possibly appalling, um, collective. And the individual didn't count for much. Here are some photographs of some workers at this time. Um, the, the other... Another name for this new society was to be the dictatorship of the proletariat. This meant that the workers became 
the patrons. They owned everything and owned nothing in this very special way. So this means who are the proletariat? And there was great debate about what kind of culture should the workers have? Should we tell them what to do? Or do we have to wait and see what it is, this culture of the proletariat? They're mostly uneducated people. So and many of them not even able to read. So here is a critical crisis almost at once. And I think it's interesting to see how workers are um, depicted in these, in these early years. So which of these is a worker, do you think? <laughs> Anyone? No. Yes? None of them. Not even the man in the middle. I thought he might be. You think he's posed, really? I think the man in the middle is more ostensibly a worker, not least because he's anonymous about anything else, but um, a, a fit man wrestling with a great machine which makes him all the more powerful. And if he remains anonymous, he can be any worker. He is a type. He is a strong man. He is robotic himself. He takes on qualities of the machine and vice versa. The other two are actually intellectuals making their pipes. Uh, this is uh, Tatlin, who was famously was um, experienced sailor, one thing or another, and worked for the theatre design and all kinds of things. But he could argue culture as well as anyone. And here he is working on, he looks 14, but he was older than that, working on his model for the monument to the Third International of 1919-1920. He's got his overalls on. But I think he's an intellectual. A chap on the far side is Alexander Rodchenko, a painter, geometric kind of painter, uh, who turned to the aim of destroying art altogether. And uh, there he is in his worker's suit that he's designed for himself. A bit too stylish, in my opinion. <laughs> so what can you do? There are intellectuals who worry about all these things, and there are workers trying to feed the family. Is that a dirty hand, I Ask myself, <laughs> is this an intellectual's hand? It's a rather brilliant uh, photograph uh, called um, Tightening the Bolt. And uh, it is by, um, by a, a constructivist called Ignatovich, photographer, who worked with Rodchenko and others. Um, this is this rather magical con contact, still fascinates us, between the machine and the human being. It's almost, in that sense, a bit like, it's an absurd comparison, but it's a bit like Michelangelo's creation of Adam, where God is <laughs> applying the life force. It's a little bit like that, and it's idealizing this physical view of the world and the human being as a kind of mechanistic creature. Quite interesting, compared with this photo montage by uh, El Lisitsky, who was a um, follower and colleague of Malevich. Brilliantly photo-montaged and put together in layers in, with negatives and so on, in which he shows himself as a designer, stroke engineer, maybe architect, maybe designer of the entire world, maybe master of the universe, maybe he's a mason, you know, the dividers, or if you think even of Blake's son, uh, God, the creator of the universe with these dividers. This is a very intellectual idea of a new beginning for mankind. Especially important for Jews. Uh, I mentioned Jews in this context because um, 
Lisitsky had worked with Chagall in an attempt to revive Jewish culture in the early Soviet days because um, as religion was more or less certainly discouraged, more or less um, uh, frowned upon and forbidden, it followed that um, as long as Jewish people didn't overtly practice religion, <laughs> the culture could thrive and, and they could spread from the areas of the, uh, uh, of the pale. So Lisitsky did quite a few uh, Jewish books, wonderful illustrated uh, books. In 24, Lenin died. Um, the exhibition makes a point out of this because life art under Lenin was very diverse and unresolved by Lunacharsky. He kept the options open. Increasingly, after 1924, when Lenin died, the uh, debate about what kind of culture should consolidate out of all this variety became more and more urgent. Here's Lenin lying in his... Uh, red coffin after a red funeral and in principle he was going to rise again um, one of the great slogans was Lenin lived, Lenin died Lenin will live again and of course he does occupy a tomb even now in, uh, in Red Square and um, his mortal remains are pretty well looked after even now I think now in the later 20s you find um, a much more powerful impact from figurative artists. And I'm going to be very brief about this, if you please, today. But here is Dienyaka again. Build more workshops. The thing that drives me crazy with this painting is why don't they have any shoes on? Uh, she's the one woman on the far side is pulling a heavy truck over an awkward railway line. And um, the little man you see on the other side there, right in the middle, is not going to rescue her in time. And she seems to be a different kind of worker from the other one, who's uh, clean, for example, well-washed, and she's a textile worker. These were paintings which didn't really correspond to academic training and formulae, but show a figurative artist in Dienica um, working from photographs, from photomontage, from joining several of his own studies together to do a composition which is a bit like a board game where you can move all the pieces around on the, on the canvas. They're very beautiful in their own way, I think. This is a textile workshop. It's almost like uh, these films about robotic people. Um, this is, um, this is Brodsky, who is one of the most famous academic figures who survived almost unscathed right through the revolution and whose studio is still in the square outside the Russian Museum. And you can see that is traditional painting at the top. That is a life room figure, really, ultimately, with a lot of Renaissance behind it. But it's a magnificent, adapt, almost a stage set adaptation of the worker hero, the anonymous worker hero. Electrification, industrialization, these were two of Stalin's priorities. And he used photography a great deal in his um, propaganda efforts. This is a man called Shaikyet showing a telegraph, um, fixing, fixing part of a telegraphic system in Moscow. And here you see even photography is filled with this message. And becomes publishable, becomes public because it's in magazines. And uh, a lot of the best photographs get published again and again and again in different contexts. 
This is power. It's electrical power meets military power. It's a very succinct message. You don't need to be able to read and you don't need to be um, politically alert all that much to think our guys are doing all right here. I'll be very quick now. Um, collectively, how to work collectively. Here is a piece of engineering. It's uh, by Vladimir Shukhov and it's the Radio Moscow um, electrical mast which was to broadcast Radio Moscow to the world and it's still there, it's in Moscow and it's being restored these days. On the far side, at the same date, this is Moscow, that was uh, Petrograd, this is Tatlin's fantastic design for the Monument of the Third International which was to be over three times the height of the Eiffel Tower and the lowest room was to be planet Earth uh, there's then two spirals coming out of the earth like a great screw and there are rooms of different geometric shapes inside and these rotate in time with the apparent movements of the stars going round in the sky and of the moon and of the sun. This was to be where world government would meet, a kind of um, where the pilot would be. Um, all the world's difficulties would be resolved up this building until they reached decisions in the hemisphere at the top, which broadcast the decisions to the world in general on Moscow's um, sky. So this is a most amazing idea. It was to step over the Neva River, which is quite a wide river. And it, um, it pleases me to think what on earth would have happened if the rooms fell, the government of the world would fall in the river. But anyway, here he is with his, some of his collective. And you can see they're working as a group. They published photographs like this to, to prove that they were a group. They've got bast shoes. It's a wonderful, fascinating photograph. You can learn all about all kinds of things just by looking at it in detail. Uh, Tatlin was one of the inventors of constructivism, really, and the tower was a case of constructing something, not a sculpture, not a painting, something that actually included communism, communist government. And the constructivists, um, including Rodchenko and Popova, who did this painting, and quite a number of others, became more and more radical and began to attack the whole idea of painting, <laughs> and beyond that, to attack the whole idea of art. There were debates comparing composition with construction. And the idea came out that construction was a great new metier, new medium. Your plumber can construct. Anybody can construct. It was a more generalized way of putting things together. And it's very fascinating. It leads to constructivist books where they say art is illusion. It's um, mystical nonsense. Down with art. Death to art. So there were attempts to destroy it altogether. Uh, Popova was a, a great painter. She's painting on hardboard here, big painting in the show. Uh, Malevich uh, gathered a, a collective around him. This is him with the slightly cropped hair here, and Lisitsky on the far side, looking a bit worse for wear. And there's a black square on the table, and the word unovis, which means embrace new art. Uh, sorry, thank you. Um, here is Malevich in the white suit, like the white background in his paintings. And here's his acolyte, uh, Lisitsky. Both have a black square on their cuff of their clothes. The black square became a kind of um, image of uh, destruction and of the new art. 
Painting on the far side is a suprematist work by Malevich in Museum of Modern Art in New York, uh, which is very famous, not least because the family claimed ownership some years ago, and a great deal of money eventually was paid to the family, who then generously uh, said the Museum of Modern Art could keep it on an indefinite loan. So the painting didn't move throughout all this <laughs> legal endeavour. Anyway, um, Lesitsky was less of a mystic, a more practical, trained engineer. And Malevich more or less gave him the job of exploring the, um, the architectural potential of um, suprematism. So it's almost a double portrait, the painting. And the square on Lesitsky's cuff may be red, because um, on the one hand, Malevich brought everything to naught with these black square. But on the other hand, Lisitsky's red square politicised everything. Now, we have a room called The Fate of the Peasants, which I can only show you in passing now, but wonderful paintings by a man called Kuzma Pyotrovodkin, whom we put in primarily because he's far less well-known in the West than he is in Russia. This shows the funeral of his father, but it's a marvellous aerial um, summing up of this vast landscape. Uh, there are lovers lying in a field. There's, uh, there's a woman feeding her child. There's harvesting, you know, uh, beginning. Terrific uh, painting. 1917, summer. The date is given in the title, and it's between revolutions. The government promoted the idea that peasants, farm workers, were the equal of the industrial workers. There's a whole line of propaganda of them meeting together, heraldically. In 1923, they put on this colossal um, um, agricultural exhibition in, uh, in Moscow and, and put peasants on trains to come and learn about it, how to do it in a modern way. Uh, but at the same time, there was starvation going on. There were several severe famines in the early 20s. And although it would be wrong as such to blame the... Bolsheviks entirely, because famines had occurred before and after the Bolshevik, um, it is not made easier by the fact that so much food was requisitioned from the peasants. And that's a David Moore uh, poster saying, help. It's about uh, exactly this, the starving of the peasants while celebrating them in great exhibitions. You can see a glimpse of this in Malevich, and uh, you can see a nice ceramic on the far side of an old peasant for the first time listening to Radio Moscow where this young pioneer is telling him how to do it. What came out of all this was collective farming. Any farmers who were at all successful were named kulaks and they were pretty well killed off by the late 20s when uh, the first five-year plans were announced by Stalin, which brought bigger and bigger collective farms together. Here's collective farm workers, often run by women, on this side by Michael Ryashki, and a photo montage poster, really, by Gustav Klutzis on the far side, saying the Komsomol are setting the seeds. Uh, here is uh, Malevich in the middle here, and Punin here, and a um, marvellous man called uh, uh, Matushin on the far side, these three ran something of the State Art Institute, called the State Art Institute in, uh, in Leningrad around 1926. And they were 
lucky really to still have a job, I think. Malevich forced himself into painting that was in some degree figurative or representational. And he was arrested twice. He was beaten up, his house was uh, searched, and he was a frightened man by the later um, 20s and early 30s. Here is one of the paintings that he exhibited in 1932. It's called Red House. He did somewhere in a letter say it's a prison. Malevich put on this show in 1932. He was given a room of his own in this colossal exhibition that we've been uh, talking about. And he had um, supremacist paintings on the wall. And he had these, what he called, architectonics, uh, monuments and um, potential buildings uh, that you see on a, on a desktop here. And a little figure of humankind addressing the universe up at the top of this central display. He'd never made anything useful. He was a visionary. All of his architectural monuments lack windows, doors, let alone drain pipes or anything of that kind. He described them flying in space, uh, where the moon's gravity equals the Earth's gravity and this kind of thing. He was forever making astonishing and baffling statements. And my favorite is, um, the universe needs no maintenance. <laughs> Don't know what it means. It's a kind of green thought, I think. If you could use the energy of the universe, you'd be fine. Uh, but it was a time when Stalin wanted some of his mega plans. This building on the far side, which has never built, the Palace of the Soviets, uh, is exactly contemporary with this. And I think Malievich is taking his message from the Palace of the Soviets competition, which was to be the biggest building in the world with a gigantic figure of Lenin on the top of it. So in the last room, we have a startling contrast between um, healthy people and really rather people in difficult, dire straits. Uh, the whole point about, I'll be just two minutes here, the whole point about socialist realism, the idea that uh, Stalin uh, pretty well uh, brought into being in 1932, was that people can't understand the spots and stripes and all these things that have been going on for the last 10 years. We need the workers to see the beautiful fruit that their very hard work will bring them to. will show them what they're working towards. It sounds very reasonable at the time, but of course it's a kind of lie, because you never get there. And uh, so people who are anonymous, even if you can see their face, people who are healthy, not in spirit, not in the soulful case, but in physical fitness, these are all images of the disciplined new collective culture. These are two photographs by Rodchenko, pioneer girl, and uh, pioneer bugler on the far side. Very dynamic, dramatic, persuasive. Here's um, politicized um, parades. These are sailors as part of May Day parades. Again, spectacular. They're, uh, they're spectacular photographs. Photography was as important as painting, much more so as far as it was multiple and it was publishable and, and so on. Malevich tuned into this need to have fit people, but they're not ordinary people, although we do see sports people looking like this these days. They're robotic, anonymous, they're rather frightening. And there were some famous paintings of the Stalin period, like these two sportswomen, 
Newcastle United supporters will recognize one outfit on the far side there. Uh, but these are vacant, anonymous, perfectly fit, very strong women, young women. So, according to Stalin, this would make you happy. In fact, he said, we are happy now. Here he is, more or less, saying it in this portrait by Brodsky. It's a fantastic flavour of a lot of this uh, make-believe world. You can see in this marvellous, uh, baffling uh, poster, collage poster by Gustav Klutzis on the far side, where all the proportions are completely wacky, deliberately. But there's Red Square with Stalin on the, uh, on the podium with the gigantic new plane called the Gigant uh, plane, biggest plane in the world, passing over. The first one is called Vladimir Lenin, the next one is called Yosef Stalin, and the next one is uh, somebody else down the Politburo, really. But it's fantastic, can't possibly be real in any way. But that's the language you had to believe. This uh, Tatlin uh, glider, of which we have a reconstruction in the exhibition, is the opposite, really. He wanted to work with um, natural forces. He'd been a sailor watching the seagulls following his, his ship. In the late, at the end of the 20s, there were critical exhibitions put on. This is uh, bourgeois art in the latest state of crisis. Tretikov Gallery, 1929, I think. Kandinsky, Rodchenko and Malevich. People began to disappear in the late 20s. Uh, here is Mayakovsky, who shot himself in the late 20s, photographed by Rodchenko on the far side. But here, a special edition of USSR in construction, all about Mayakovsky. But really, it was the regime which he tried to criticise, which uh, was problematic. Malevich was denied more investigation by the fact he died in 1935 uh, with his own suprematist coffin, waiting for him, and with the black square in place and probably rather colourful paintings around him, where he thought he was going in his coffin, I'm not sure. Outer space, probably. Here's Malevich talking to Gustav Klutzis, who did that extraordinary poster. And here's a police photograph of Klutzis shortly before he was shot. This is the great theatre director, very committed um, Bolshevik, um, uh, Meyerhold, um, shortly before he was, he was shot. His wife was killed in the most appalling way. But, and he actually wrote to Stalin from his prison cell saying, uh, dear leader, you know, there's something terrible going on here. You need to know about it. And here is Nikolai Punin, who starts and ends this whole thing, first as Commissar of, uh, of Art in uh, Petrograd, and as the man who put the 15-year exhibition together uh, in 1932. 1932 is the same date that Stalin banned by decree all independent groups and formed the Union of Artists, Union of Musicians, and so on, which were all answerable to the government. So he'd used this great survey as a kind of pick-and-mix opportunity to see what the outlines of the new Stalinist culture would be. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.